It's good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the elders here. I'm the lead teaching pastor, and I'm excited to talk to you guys today. Um, if you have your Bible with you or you use an app, go ahead and flip over to 1 Corinthians 14. That's going to be the passage today that shows us Christ more clearly. Um, it's going to be the passage today that does all of the heavy lifting for us. Um, if you've been coming, we've been going through a very short series on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We had started it um, a few months ago, uh, just as part of our series on Galatians, but we paused it so we could finish Galatians. It was taking us forever to get through that book, so now we are going to finish. I think we have this week and possibly uh, one more week after this where we will do the gifts of the Spirit. Today, we are doing the spiritual gifts, and we're going to look at what the Bible teaches us about the spiritual gift of prophecy and speaking in different tongues. Okay, some of you have never heard a teaching on that before. If you're a guest today, I'm sorry. That's where we're at in the text, okay? And nothing says Mother's Day like talking about the gift of prophecy and speaking in tongues, right? If I'm right, am I right, moms? We got you chocolate bars. Just remember that, okay? And I'm pretty sure my mom did some speaking in tongues when I was a little kid and she didn't even know Jesus. She was just so upset with us, so I do think of Mother's Day a little bit, <laughs> But the reason those jokes are even goofy is because our hearts all do have a reaction to these gifts. We can't really help it. Um, some of us in this room, and I know this before I start, some of us in this room don't even believe that these gifts are in activity today. They believe that they had stopped at some point in the past and there is no activity today like that in the church some of you, you might believe it, but you're a little bit jaded against it because you might have seen it abused and you think, how could God possibly breathe on something and engage something that has been so heavily abused in the past? But if, if I'm right, I would say that most likely most of you are neutral with it. You're just neutral with these gifts, but you don't know what you would do if you ever bumped into them. If you ever walked into a room and you saw it happening, you don't know how you would react if you saw it or your kids saw it or maybe you brought a neighbor and something like that happened around you, you're not quite sure what you would do. I get that. And as we look at this topic today, I think it is probably important just for a minute or two to look at our hearts. Our hearts do something whenever we approach difficult texts in the scripture. And we've already dedicated ourselves to be a church that will teach all of the passages of the Bible, even the controversial ones, even 1 Corinthians 14, right? But our hearts want to do something, and, and it's not new in us. It goes all the way back to the garden. Our hearts want to not trust God's plan, and our hearts want to hold on to our own personal selfish desires. And these are the two things I want you to watch in your hearts as we go through this text today, right? You see, back in the garden, God had a design. He had a plan. Adam and his bride did not trust that that plan was good for them. They didn't trust that it was God's plan. They had a better plan in their minds. So they superimposed their plan on top of God's plan. And genetically, they passed that down to you and me. Every human being who has ever lived between our first parents all the way up till today, we all struggle with superimposing our plans on top of God's plan. I mean, sure, we'll follow God's plan whenever it's convenient for us and whenever it's helpful, but as soon as we find it disagreeable or uncomfortable, well, then we put our own in because this is how crooked we are. That's just how messed up we really are. 
Enter Jesus Christ, who lived before us and showed us what true Christianity really looked like because he was able to live and honor God's plan without superimposing his own. And listen, Jesus Christ was tempted to do that. He just didn't bite the bait. Jesus was tempted to superimpose his will and his plan over God's. This is why you hear him in the garden saying, man, is there any other way to do this? Any other way to swerve around the cross but doing the cross? But not my will, Father, but yours be done. Friends, that was a heavy temptation. What does it have to do with the spiritual gifts? When it comes to these strong, mystical, strange, miraculous, rare spiritual gifts, our hearts are going to be tempted, hear me, to put our plan on top of God's plan. These gifts are a part all of the spiritual gifts. And like we said last week, there's probably around 22. There's no less than 22. More than likely, there are more than what's listed in the Bible because of how we see them listed in different places, right? Those lists are not meant to be complete or exhaustive. But these gifts are part of God's plan. They're his design. And and hear this, God gave them to mankind knowing that they would be abused. Think about that. Corinth did not catch God by surprise. He wasn't excited about the spiritual gifts, then saw Corinth abuse them, and then go, oh, I don't know what to do now. I mean, it was a good thing, and then Corinth messed it up, so I guess we'll just make them extinct at some point. He didn't think that. He knew that we were abusers as people. We've always been abusers. We abused his son when he brought him, who was the ultimate spiritual gift to us. Jesus Christ is the greatest spiritual gift who has ever come into mankind, and we abused him. Gives us creation. We abuse that. We're an abusive people. And still, God in his benevolence, in his brilliance, gives us the spiritual gifts. But when it comes to these, we have a hard time trusting God's plan. We insert our own. All right? I want you to remember that. Remember that. That's one way that we fail. Another is being selfish. And that too goes all the way back to the garden as well. All right? Adam and Eve wanted what they could not have. They had a fleshly desire. God said, you cannot have that. You cannot have fruit from that specific tree, the tree of the fruit of the the knowledge of good and evil. And they wanted it. They were not able to contend with that. They failed in that. And genetically, that's been passed on to us as well, right? And every human being who's ever lived between then and now, struggles in putting down our personal flesh desires, especially when it pertains to doing good for those around us, right? That's where we really fail, is sacrificing our own desires to better the body. Again, enter Jesus Christ, who shows us what that looks like. Is that not what he did? Did he not? Was he not also tempted to pursue his own desires even over God's? Look at the Bible. Read it. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. How did the enemy tempt him? He tried to show him, hey, you can have what you want. Don't you want this? Doesn't this seem good to you? Don't you desire this? You can pursue it. And he pursued God's will over his own. He showed us what this looks like. Now, what does this have to do with spiritual gifts? Corinth was a church of beautiful people, great people who loved God, but they struggled here. They struggled in putting down their own fleshly desires in order to serve those around them, right? They struggled in putting them down. So the mantra of a Corinthian would be, I'm going to do this because it feels good to me, and I don't care if it hurts people around me. It doesn't really bother me because I feel extra spiritual inside when I do this. I like the way it makes me feel, 
And I'm sorry if no one else uh, can grow from that or be edified from that, but that's their deal. They can catch up. Some of you today, as we go through these two gifts, and we only have time for two, believe me, and I'm going to have to race just to get through this. As we go through this, some of you are going to be tempted to desire that they didn't even exist. Your desire, your will, and your plan is that these gifts don't even exist. Just get them out of the way. They're too much trouble. They're weird. They're strange. They kind of make me feel weird. I don't know what I'd ever do if I was around it. I would ask you to put that down. Just put it down, at least long enough to get through the sermon, right? And you make up your own mind, right? And then some of you are going to want to express your gifts, and you don't care what people around you think. You don't care how they feel about it. And I'd ask for you to put that down as well. Again, at least until we can get through this sermon. I will say personally, I've grown up in the charismatic church for 18 years. I've seen plenty of this. I am a big fan of the spiritual gifts. We are a church that believes in the continuing of the spiritual gifts. But if I have to be totally honest with you, and I will, we could just be church for a minute. These two, I tend to be skeptical with. My heart wants to be skeptical. I'm much more quickly to rush to judging something or condemning it before embracing it and seeing God doing something beautiful into it. So what I mean is, is if I were to walk into a room and I see a brother prophesying over a couple people or I see someone uh, you know, giving a word of prophecy to encourage somebody, what I should do, what my heart should do is go, oh, wow, this is cool. Look what God's doing. I wonder what's being said. That should be my heart. It's not, though. I walk into the room and I think, oh, brother, I wonder what's being said. I'm instantly confrontational with it. Instantly. I know my heart. I would think that the majority of you are like me in that. The majority of you, I believe, are like me in that regard. Kind of neutral. You're not against the gifts, but you are going to be quick to assume the worst about them before you embrace them. I understand that too. It's easy to talk about the gift of leading like we did last week. It's easy to talk about the gift of leadership. None of you threw tomatoes at me whenever I did that. It's easy. We love that. We love talking about serving and hospitality. But when it comes to these, I do think that our hearts struggle and they will lead us in a different direction. I'd ask for you to just give me the chance. Let me teach this. Let me teach you what we believe the scriptures say on this, and then you can make your own decision on that, right? We've already said as a church a million times, we're not asking for you to agree with everything we teach as a church. We just ask that you don't be divisive, right? So I'm not requiring you believe what we believe as a church, but it is important for us to teach the Bible as we read it. So that's what I'm going to do. One thing I'd ask, though, as you listen, is watch your heart. Watch your heart. Watch your heart. Our hearts are crooked, and they will straight up lead us in a different direction from Scripture many times. Many times. It's easy to talk about easy things. You start talking about ladies and pastoral leadership, finances, right? Sex. You start talking about some things, and your heart will straight up want to go in the opposite direction of where Scripture leads. I get way too many people way too many people giving me the thumbs up or the thumbs down on these two gifts based on nothing more than just how they feel inside. Well, I don't believe in speaking in tongues. Well, why not? Because it just doesn't sound right. Well, well why not? Well, because it just, it's, it shouldn't be. Because it can be abused. 
Well, so what? Teaching's abused every day. I mean, we abuse the gifts at a, at a massive level. I just don't think that we should be doing it. Why not? Because I just don't. Friends, that's just inadequate. Honestly, that's inadequate. These gifts were God's idea. They're not Benny Hinn's idea. They're not the charismatic church's idea. It's not the 700 club's idea. These were God's idea. So let's approach the scripture with that in mind, okay? Because, friends, you are called. Church, you are called to trust God with his plan. Did he not show himself trustworthy? Has God not shown himself trustworthy to us? Did Jesus not walk away from a grave? Think about it. Is God not a keeper of his promises? Is he not an architect of a beautiful plan as we see it? Church, you're also called to value the body of Christ over your own personal selfish desires. Right? Isn't this what Jesus did? Our first Adam failed. The second Adam in Christ comes and reverses what the first Adam failed at. Is that not what we see? So as we jump in, and i got to jump in, let's jump in. 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to teach, we're going to go from verse 1 to verse 5, and then I'm going to hit pause a little bit. Um, so it will be, you have to go forward and then back, it stalls like that. I don't know why it does that. Pursue love, it says in verse 1, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Okay, pause. Some of you are gifted in prophecy, and I know that. Right? And some of you know that, and you know people around you that, that, are, that feel gifted in that. And I would be shocked if by the time we got to the end of the sermon, many more of you did not, were, or were not at least curious as to whether this was a gift that you had. Right? There is a broader sense of the word prophecy used in the New Testament. I am not talking about this broader use of the word. Semantics are important here. A lot of the debate around these are based on nothing more than vocabulary. Okay, the broader sense of the word, it just means to communicate or relay a message given by God. It could be like preaching or teaching Um, in the New Testament. What I would be doing right now could be and is in some times and places considered a prophetic act. What I'm doing, not really talking about that. I'm talking about the gift where God spontaneously brings a message or relays a message to someone for a person or a group. I'm talking about what you're thinking about whenever I say the word prophetic. Okay. This is what Wayne Grudem says on this. I'm, I put the quote up on the screen. I'm not big on reading to people, but these two sentences that he writes are very beautiful, and he does a good job. He says this, Paul, in this passage, is referring to something that God may suddenly bring to mind, or something that God may impress on someone's consciousness in such a way that the person has a sense that it is from God. It may be that the thought brought to mind is surprisingly distinct from the person's own train of thought, or that it is accompanied by a sense of vividness or urgency or persistence, or in some other way gives the person a rather clear sense that it is from the Lord. Okay, it's a good definition. I don't even want to build on that, right? But because it's such a controversial and beat-upon pinata, 
I felt like it would be better to come at prophecy from what it is not. Prophecy is not a lot of things. Prophecy, for example, prophecy in the New Testament and today is not the prophecy from the Old Testament. When a prophet spoke, capital P, when a prophet spoke in the Old Testament, those words had absolute divine authority. Absolute divine authority. Whenever they wrote or spoke, many times it became scripture, right? Over 200 times in the Old Testament, we see the phrase, thus says the Lord, or this is what God says. This is what the Lord is saying. We see that so many times. In fact, these words had such great weight and such deep gravity that to disobey a prophet back in those times would be equivalent to disobeying God. You see the depth and the importance of the words they write and say. That's why if you were busted in being a false prophet, they'd straight up kill you. You'd be stoned. That's how important it is. It's not like that today. First of all, there are no more prophets, capital P. There's an impartial gift of prophecy given today. We're going to put it up on the screen, 1 Corinthians 13, 9. So don't feel like you need to be flipping to these um, because we will have them up on the screen and some of them I'm moving pretty fast through. It says this, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So we have this imperfect understanding of what God is relaying to us. And when will that stop? When we're sitting with God. When we're with Jesus at a banqueting table and we're staring at each other and we're partying and we're having communion and we're collected as a family after the end of all ends, then we will not need prophecy anymore. Why? Because we could just go ask God. We could just go talk to God. Prophecy today is not perfect. It does not have the weight and the authority of the Old Testament prophets. It has no divine authority. No absolute divine authority. Which leads me to another point. Prophecy is not to be trusted blindly. Doesn't matter who's given it. Doesn't matter if I'm telling you something prophetically. Doesn't matter if anyone else in it. It is not, not to be trusted blindly. But it is to be measured and stretched and weighed and applied and set next to the the living word of God. It is to be anchored. 1 Thessalonians 5, it says this. Do not despise prophecy. Some of you really need to hear that because you've grown up despising prophecies. And this should be confronting you right here. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Right after that, 1 Corinthians 14 says, Let two or three prophets speak and let the others do what? Weigh it. Let them measure it. Let them look at it. Let them probe it. Let them tease it out. Let them measure it. In the Old Testament, prophecy would become Scripture a lot of times. In the New Testament and today, prophecy sits under Scripture. It sits underneath Scripture. The words of someone prophetically gifted today are not divinely absolute. They're not considered the words of God with full authority. They are not. They are not Scripture. This is why one of the biggest abuses I've seen, I'm just saying experientially in the last 18 years of being in the charismatic church, one of the biggest abuses I have seen is when a prophet will prophesy and right before or right after or somewhere in between, they say, thus says the Lord. Uh Uh-uh. Bad. What they're doing, or or this is what God is telling you, or these are the words of the Lord. They might not mean to be doing this, but there is a subtle manipulation of emphatically, you need to hear this, exclamation point. I am saying this, and I feel confident, and I, I feel extra, extra, extra confident about it, so therefore, these are the words of the Lord. No, 
You don't see anyone even doing that in the New Testament. No one's even saying that in the New Testament. We don't say that because they're not divinely absolute, right? And you could be missing it. You could be hitting a foul ball accidentally. So we don't, we don't claim it. In fact, just as an aside, the best way to do that, if you are gifted or you feel like you might be gifted prophetically, is just to submit it to somebody. Submit it to the person or the pastor or whoever and say, hey, listen, I might be wrong in this, but I feel like the Lord is saying this. I'd like to submit it to you. Test it, weigh it, stretch it out. Let me know how you're processing it. Let me know how you're working with it. And, and, and give me some feedback because I'm trying to work on this gift of prophecy. I'm trying to work on this. So help me out. That's the way it should be. Not thus says the Lord. Are you kidding me? Have the fear of God on you about that, friend. Another thing prophecy is not, prophecy is not just predictive. It's not just foretelling what is going to happen. Sometimes it just meets the human heart where the human heart needs to be met. Sometimes it just benefits the believer. We see this in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? You see, the object, the thesis here in this whole chapter is benefiting the brother. How will I benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Sometimes prophecy does predict and prepare you. But when God is doing that, he's preparing your heart for something that he's about to do. He's preparing your heart, right? It's not like God is being predictive so he could be all cool and David Blaine and look, I'm about to tell you what's all Nostradamus. This is going to be really cool. This is going to happen in three months. He doesn't need that. He doesn't need you to think he's cool like that. He's doing it to prepare your heart, right? I've only had four major prophecies in my life, right? And I'm not one, by the way. And I don't have that gift. But I've had four. I've had one in 1996, about two months after I became a Christian. I've had one in 99, 2000, and 2002. Four different people, two men and two women, right? None of them knew who I were. Different places, different states, right? That was the setup. They didn't even know my name. And they all pretty much said the exact same thing. Just different words because they're different people, right? Three, I mean, just two, two, three months after I became a Christian. Luke, you will be a planter of churches. There are multiple churches in you, and you will train up people behind you to plant churches. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, now that's a no-duh, right? That's what we're doing. That's what we've been about doing. Planting churches that will plant churches that will plant churches that will reach the city, right? But in 1990, I didn't even know what that meant. I'm trying to figure out how to date and what is a tithe exactly. And can I get rid of the Gideons and get a Bible I can read? I mean, this is 1996, Starting churches can even iron my pants. But it was helpful for me because it prepared my heart for what God will do. And let me tell you now, it's beneficial to me. It's a benefit to me because, make no mistake, there's a lot of dark nights of the soul. And for me to look back and remember that God had prepared me for this, it, it, it encourages me. It's kind of like when you find Paul telling Timothy, hey, remember those gifts that came to you by prophecy? And what he's, he's not saying that prophecy gave you those gifts. God gave the gifts and prophecy told you what they were. He says, remember those things? Stir those up. Practice them. Because he was veering away. He was getting discouraged. Sometimes they are predictive here, right? We see that. Acts 11, we see it in the New Testament. And one of them named Agabus, who was a New Testament prophet, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, which did take place in the days of Claudius. And you could look at it in your history books as well. It was there. 
So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. What is God doing there? It's predictive prophecy. He's preparing their hearts. They listen. They put some things in action. Action plan. God is saying there will be a day coming real soon. There's not going to be a whole lot of food. So they all chipped in and were ready for that. Sometimes prophecy can be to groups like this. Sometimes it's individually. And sometimes it's not so encouraging, by the way. Agabus, same guy, talks to Paul individually. And he says, oh, by the way, this is how you'll be carted off to die by the hands of the Jews. Right? Preparing his heart. Sometimes it is to just minister to the believer. This is why he says in verse 3 of chapter 14, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And sometimes prophecy reveals Jesus to people. Sometimes it can be used missionally. Now, this is really cool when you see this. This is a lot of fun to have this gift. This is what it says in verses 24 and 25 of the same chapter. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Is this not what happened in the case of the Samaritan woman? Jesus comes, he lowers the boom, he reads her mail, she flips out, goes back to the village and says, hey, you got to come hear this guy. He told me everything I ever did. That's missional prophecy right there. Listen, I've only prophesied once in my life. It's not a gift I have. I think it was just God's grace I had at that one time. Back in 99, I walked into the student center of Texas Tech University, and I asked God to give me a prophetic word for somebody. I'd never even had one before. I don't know what it looks like, feels like, you know. I just thought it'd be cool. And he showed me one young man, and he said, Luke, And it didn't sound like this. I didn't have an audible voice in my head. I just had the impression. This is the only way I can explain it, right? Luke, this person is hooked up to the wrong family. This guy's dad left him at an early age. He's coachable. He's always wanted a father figure to mentor him. And I want to be that father figure. That's what God told me. So I walk up to the guy. I sit down right next to him. Hey, bro, what's up? You know, I mean, how, do you, how do you get into that? How do you go from I don't know you to I just did it. I just said, listen, I'm going to sound like a total whack job, and I understand that. <laughs> but here it goes. That dude got radically saved. He was hooked up. He was a witch in a little coven they had. He was in charge of a bunch of other witches and warlocks, gave all that up, burned all of the stuff, become a radical Christian. Now he's married, leads worship. It's just this great story. That was a lot of fun. Missional prophecy is just a lot of fun. Some of you, you have this gift. Some of you, you expect that you might, but you're not quite sure. This might be you. You might have this gift if you have strong impressions whenever you see somebody or a group. And it might be a passage of scripture. There's nothing wrong with that. For you to say, hey, prophetically, I feel like God is giving me this passage for you right now. That is a beautiful way of prophesying for people, right? Or maybe it's a word or a phrase or a feeling. Maybe you see some sort of a a struggle that they're having or a sin that you're able to kind of come and talk to them, but you just can't shake it loose. You see the same person, the same word comes up. You see the same group of people and the same phrase or the same passage comes up. This might be you. This might be you if you have dreams at night. Any of you ever have one of those dreams? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you do. You wake up and you're like, whoa, 
there are dreams, then there are dreams, you know, like weird ones, and then there are are those dreams where you can't write stuff down fast enough because God and his brilliance has earmarked it somehow and you know, you know that it's real business. I've had three of those in my life and they kept me from making really bad decisions. They weren't prophecies for anyone else. It was just a dream God gave me. And it, and it literally kept me from shipwrecking my family. It's beautiful. It might be you. It might be you if you find yourself stopping mid-task or mid-sentence because you have this overwhelming burden to pray for somebody or a group, only to find out later on that at that same time that person needed some prayer or that group had needed some prayer, right? It might be you. You might be prophetically gifted. If this is you, I'm excited. And I'm, I'm hoping that you nurture this and cultivate this gift. To be honest with you, our church could use more of this gift. I think the city could use much more of this gift. It's a beautiful gift. I've seen prophecy do beautiful thing in, in, in people's lives. We have some people here that are prophetically gifted that you should walk up and talk to. I know people are automatically a little uh, antsy about talking to me about stuff like this because I know you just think I'm going to put a microphone in your hand, and I'm not. That's not going to happen. We're going to do the opposite of that, actually. But at the same time, you have Kevin, who's prophetically gifted. He's ministered from the pulpit a couple times. Darren has done the same thing. Darren actually would be the one that you would want to talk to. He's written curriculum on this. He's written a book on this, on how to nurture this gift. He's taught clinics in labs, teaching people how to nurture and cultivate this beautiful gift. We're set up to train proper, biblical, gospel-centered, prophetically gifted believers. I hope you cultivate this. Listen, if you have texts or questions, just be sure to text them in, okay? Um, text them in because i got to shift gears here. We're going we're to talk about tongues, all right? The spiritual gift of tongues. It's kind of awkward transition, but it's an awkward subject, so it's appropriate, I guess, right? Um, it's kind of unfortunate that it's even called tongues. It's a bad translation. What it meant to them, had they heard tongues in the old world, they would have understood languages. Today, it's the thing in your mouth, right? So when we say gift of tongues, it feels extra mysterious and extra mystical and extra weird and strange. It simply means the gift of various languages. That's all that it means, and Paul actually refers to it as various kinds of tongues, and that's because we see three primary ways in which various tongues show up. One would be in a private moment, a private moment where someone is before the Lord, and all a tongue is, and all prayer of languages is, is this, is simply a praise, a psalm, a song, a prayer that comes through in syllables and in utterances not understood by the speaker. That's what I'm talking about. It sometimes that happens in private. Sometimes that happens when no one else is around and they start praying in English and then bam, out of nowhere, they're praying in tongues and they're not contriving it. And I've seen the difference and I know there's a lot of believers that they just start making up things and they hope that tongues just kind of finds them. They hope that if they're just obedient and stepping out and uttering some things and just kind of saying some syllables, that maybe that honors God in some way, that he will come and meet them halfway and give them real tongues. Friends, you don't have to contrive it. If you have the gift of tongues, it's just going to come to you. You don't have to give it a head start or anything like that. I don't have this gift either, right? I know people that do. I don't have it. There is a pastor, our Acts 29 pastor in Oklahoma City, Sam Storms. Um, he's a brilliant man, well-respected on both sides of the aisle, I guess you can say. Um, high scholar and theologian. He does have this gift, and he's written a lot on the spiritual gifts. I'd, I'd 
submit you get some of his work if you struggle with this. But this is his experience that the very first time it happened to him, I felt like it was appropriate. He says, one night in October of 1970, quite without warning, my normal, somewhat routine prayer was radically interrupted. I suddenly began speaking forth words of uncertain sound and form. I didn't start out by consciously muttering a few senseless syllables, which then gave way to a more coherent linguistic experience. It was more like a spiritual invasion in which the Spirit intruded on my life, interrupted my speech patterns, and gave utterance. There was a profound intensification of my sense of God's nearness and power. I had never experienced anything remotely similar to that in all of my life. Right? I'm going to take his word for it. It's never happened to me. But biblically, this is how I see it happening in believers whenever it becomes a personal prayer language. It's called glossolalia for the scholars in you. Right? There's another kind where it shows up and it's more missional. Right? It's a missional act of tongues. This is what they call xenoglossia. And this is where someone speaks in a language and it is actually a language of the land. It'd be like you speaking French and you never went to school for French. Because no one ever goes to school for French anyway, right? It'd be like that. And all of a sudden, someone understands you in France. Now listen, I don't know anyone who's ever done this. I don't know anyone who knows anyone who's ever done this, right? But we have it in Pentecost. Acts 2, this is what we see. We see the nations of the land with different languages and dialects coming together. And they say, we hear these people extolling the Lord and praising God in our own languages. So that would be another one. The big one, though, is that it can be revelational. This is the controversial form right here. It can be revelational, which means that God gives somebody the gift of speaking tongues, and either that person interprets it or a second person is there to interpret that tongue which an interpreter is necessary, right? That's where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people. Again, I'd like to look at this gift by telling you what it is not, because the gift of tongues is not a lot of things, right? It is not divorced or separate from God's overarching plan. God's story, the gift of tongues, is a beautiful part of God's story. Think about it. Zoom out. 30,000 foot view, right? You have Adam in the garden with God. They are speaking a singular language. There is no need for different languages. They're speaking face to face, right? Adam breaks the cosmos with his sin, and now you have all of mankind speaking the same language. But now this language isn't being used to serve God, glorify God, vault God's fame up, Uh, sacrifice, praise, worship. It's not used. It's used for rebellion. It's used for depravity. It's used for self-glorification, right? That's what we see. In fact, you can fast forward from there and you get all the way to Genesis 11 and it says this, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Think the story of Babel, right? Everybody's speaking the same language. On the same page, same goals, same everything. And they're going to build a city and they're going to build a tower, Because God's glory is insufficient for them. They're going to put their own glory up there. It's going to be their glory. They're unifying their language for sure. But it's in war against God. So what does God do? He comes down and he scatters their languages, does he not? He confuses their languages. And in fact, what he does is he scatters those nations to the far reaches of the globe. Now you've got a bunch of different nations with a bunch of different languages, right? Big picture now. Fast forward again right? Just a little bit longer. And you have God picking one nation among all nations. The nation of Abraham, Isaac, 
Jacob, Joseph, Moses, this chosen nation that as soon as those people leave the Red Sea, they're a brand new nation of Israel. Now it's a little bit of an upgrade because now with all these different languages, at least one has a language that is unified in serving God, or at least that was the intent, to worship God, to sing of God's glory, to write scripture. Now, if you wanted to be a part of God's family in those days, you needed to do what? Become a Jew. You needed to join the nation whose language was serving God. Now, fast forward again. You're up to the day of Pentecost now, right? Now, God is not scattering languages to the edges of the earth anymore. Now he's bringing the languages in. It's a reverse. Pentecost is a reverse Babel. Now you have people of different tongues and different languages coming in to to, to find unity behind a singular king. Now instead of their own glory being vaulted and made much of, they're making much of God, our creator king. Fast forward again. And you get to a time where we are all together, sitting around the same table, worshiping a new communion with God, right there with him. And we will be speaking the same language again with God, just as if sin had never broke it, just like Adam in the garden before sin even came. That's what it will be like. Listen, that's called, what we just did is called biblical theology, by the way, where you take one topic and you weave it through the story of God. It's an effective way of learning scripture. We're actually going to teach a class pretty soon, I think, on how to do that, how to see biblical theology in some of the different topics. That was just an easy one, right? But can you see that the gift of God, or we'll just say the gift of speaking in tongues and languages, it's not far from God's plan. It's a signpost. But Luke, it's so weird and spectacular. Friend, it's supposed to be. We're not messing that up. It's supposed to be a little crazy. It's supposed to get your attention if you see that. That's what signs are supposed to do. And they're not pointing to you. They're pointing to the gospel. They're literally gospel-centered because think about this. Think about this. Languages, the gift of languages, is showing us that there will be a time where we will be with the king again and sin will have no effect on our communication with each other and with God. Our communication will be pure. And the gift of tongues is just emphasizing that. Kind of like healing, which we haven't even talked about. That will be in another teaching. But healing is the same way. I mean, it's cool when someone hops out of a wheelchair or cancer is gone. That is a really cool thing. It's a little bit bigger than just that person and God's love for that person, though. God is making Christ famous in that moment because he's also saying, oh, you think that's cool. You think it's cool when someone comes out of a wheelchair? There's going to be a day, brother, where sin has no effect on our bodies at all. No wheelchairs, no bad knees, no contact lenses, no medical school, no crutches, no dentists, no none of that. Sin will have no effect on the human body at all. And this is just a taste. This is just to get you excited. This should point to what Jesus did to break the back of sin, right? That's what tongues does. There will be a day where because of Jesus breaking the back of sin and death, there will be no hindrance in our communication with each other and with God. It's just not really about us, friends. It's about making Christ famous, That's what gifts are supposed to do. We've talked about that over and over again. Gifts are supposed to make Jesus famous. They illuminate the gospel. The gift of languages is also not always, or it's not ever, let me just say it this way, it's not ever supposed to be direction to the body or prophecy. I've seen this messed up. I've seen this messed up before. 1 Corinthians 14, it says this, 
For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to man but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Right? So this is what happens when it doesn't look good, when it's wrong. Someone maybe speaks in a tongue, whether it's in a living room or a congregation. It happens. And then someone says, I have an interpretation. Or maybe the speaker himself or herself says, I have an interpretation. And then out it comes. Thus says the Lord. Here's a teaching for you. I feel this about you. I saw a vision for you. If you ever hear that, that's a fail. They hit a foul ball. That's what that is. An interpreted tongue should sound like a prayer. It's not for man. It's to God. It should sound like a praise. It should sound like a psalm. That's how you should know it, right? Tongues is not something that needs a decoder ring from an interpreter as a message from a person to a person. That's just weird. That's not what that's about. Revelationally, it is going to have an effect and edify the body, but that's because it's a common prayer that we can all understand. That's how the body is built. That's what Paul is talking about right here. The gift of languages is also not a gift given to everybody. Some of you have grown up in the charismatic church and you've been taught that tongues is the stamp of approval on whether or not you have received the fullness of the gift of the, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? So what they will teach is, is you know that you've got the fullness of the Holy Spirit in you if you speak in tongues. Wrong. Wrong. We don't have time to teach there for very long. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that when we are brought into the same body as Christians, that is when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the baptism happens upon salvation. Upon salvation. Are you curious as to whether you have the fullness of the Holy Ghost in you? Well, are you saved? And congratulations. It's that easy. Besides the fact, there is no single gift that everybody gets. Paul is pretty emphatic about that. He says this in verses 29 and 30. We're all apostles. We're all prophets. These are rhetorical, by the way. We're all teachers, miracles, gifts, healing, tongues, interpreters. No, no, no. And the gift of languages is also not something to be done in corporate settings without interpreters. And I don't care if it's a living room, a crowded car, or a gathering like this. The Bible is the Bible, and we follow the Bible. It is not to be done without interpreters in public settings. In public settings, right? 1 Corinthians 14, it says this in verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Paul doesn't say forsake the gift. He doesn't say hate on it. He doesn't say mock it. He doesn't say rail on it. He doesn't say write some books against it. He doesn't say have a conference against it. He doesn't say spit on it. He says just help that person to edify themselves when they're alone, to build themselves up, and not be a distraction. That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying. Look at verse 16. Now, brothers, it says, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that it is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And then he goes on and on and on to nail the point in even more. 
Tongues cannot build a church unless there is an interpretation telling people what the heck is going on. And if someone comes in from the street, Knoxville comes in and sits down, and they hear something babbled, what are they supposed to do with that? All it's doing is being super distractive. I think this is also where charismatic churches can hit foul balls. Pretty big abuse here, right? They might say, Luke, we agree with you. That's why on the microphone, we don't let anyone speak in a tongue or pray in a tongue unless we have an interpreter there. So it never happens in a service. No, brother, but there have been a lot of services where it's happening in different chairs. 20, 30% of the people are doing it in their chairs. Like they're finding a technicality or a loophole on Paul or something. He doesn't say do it in your chair. He doesn't say if you don't have an interpreter, don't do it on the mic. Don't do it on the Bose system if there's no interpreter there. He's not saying that. He's saying don't do it at all. He's not even saying do it under your breath. He's saying don't do it at all. Not because everyone hates you. Not because you're embarrassing. It's just because you're not edifying the body. It's not building up the body. That's all he's saying. If we hear people exceed this parameter here, we we haven't had to do this yet, but that's because our church, the feeling of our church, feels not so charismatic, even though on paper we're very charismatic. So this isn't something that we've had to do yet. I know the time is coming where we do. Where we hear of someone or we hear somebody praying in the Spirit in their chair, row 10, seat 3, and we'll just pull them out and we'll say, hey, brother, listen, we're excited that you're experiencing the gifts. I'm excited that you have this gift. I don't know very many people that have it. We're going to ask you to not do it right now. Can you like stick that back in the can <laughs> and wait till you get in the car in a place where you're not distracting people around you, right? We're not going to hate on them. We're not kicking them out of the church. We're not going to do anything weird like that. We're just going to ask them to follow the Bible, just follow scripture. I, I think this is the biggest abuse of the gift of tongues. I, I think this is the biggest one. I've walked into way too many prayer gatherings and services where so many people are doing it. People yelling in tongues, speaking in tongues, whispering in tongues. Not a single interpretation for any of it. No instruction, no intelligible prayer, no lesson, no direction, no teaching, no love, no community, no anything. It's just madness. Right? This is what was happening at Corinth. That's why Paul wrote the letter. We're, we're finishing here now. I know what you're thinking, some of you. Some of you are thinking, Luke, is this something we would ever see here? This gift of tongues, right? You've already seen prophecy in certain degrees at certain places. Is this something we would ever see here? I don't know. It's awfully rare. Remember last week we talked about the gift of preaching. And I said, hey, listen, this is a rare gift. Not everybody can preach. We have a lot of preachers in the land that call themselves preachers, very little gift of preaching exercise, right? Not everybody can do that. And teaching is definitely not preaching. Like this is more teaching than it is preaching, right? So it's a rare gift. Could could it happen here? Ah, Listen, it would need to be, and these are the parameters we have, just so you know. Someone who is a partner with legacy that we can vouch for. We know the state of the union of their heart. Are they a growing Christian that is in community? Are they growing? Do they value the unity of the body? Do they fight for the purity of the word? That's the rubric we put up there. And if the question is yes, then do they have an interpretation? If the answer is no, they go back and sit down. If the answer is yes, 
We weigh that by the person, right? If we have another interpreter come up and say, hey, I feel like I need to interpret something, which I've never had that happen in 18 years, right? And I also had another person come say, hey, I feel like God has given me a tongue. And both those people meet all of those qualifications, you might see it. But friends, you see how rare that is? 18 years, I've seen it once. I've been in nothing but charismatic church. 18 years, I've seen it once, and it was a miss. The guy that got up and did it, it came out as a prophecy. And I'm like, that wasn't even right, man. I mean, either you failed or both of you guys failed, but that was a failure. Not a big deal. No one went to hell that day. It was not some huge deal. But at the same time, it was a fail, right? So I guess if you throw that back in, no, I've never seen it happen. I've never seen it happen. This is why most of you have never seen it happen. I'll just say even with prophecy, generally, same rubric. Are they a partner? Are they growing? Do they honor the word? Can we vouch for them? Do we know the state of their soul? Do they love the body? Do they favor and fight for the unity and the harmony of Legacy Church? Do they love the word of God? Do they love the gospel? Do they even understand their gift? That's the rubric. And listen, I'm not just hating on those gifts. That's what we do for preachers and teachers too. Preaching and teaching in corporate settings, it's the same thing. Are they a partner? Do they love Jesus? Are they equipped for that? Are they gifted for that? We go through the exact same rubric. Why? Because I know what some of you are thinking. Man, it looks like the coffee filter's kind of thick between the cheap seats and getting to do something like that with everybody. It is. That's good for you. That's safe for you. We take that seriously. We don't take the leadership and the equipping and the protection of a body soft at all. We take that seriously. Seems hard, Luke. I know. We've just done a cursory study on two controversial gifts. I probably only hit 40% of what could be taught on this. But I want to return without going any further because we've already taken way too much time. I want you to go back to the initial challenge of looking at your hearts. How are you doing with that? I've, I've given you a lot. I've opened up the fire hydrant. How's your heart? Are you kicking back on this? Why are you kicking back? Do you have a good reason? Do you have a scriptural reason? Or is it just how it makes you feel? Do you want to do it no matter what people around you think? How's your heart? Why do you need that? Why do you, why do you have to have that? Listen, by God's grace, and by God's grace alone, this grows into the complexion of a body of a lot of diversity in the gifts. Right now, we're not there. We have a long way to go on that. We have some solid giftings and some patchy areas. I'd like to see a beautiful diversity in that. It's, it's interesting how pastors and people, we want diversity in ethnicity. We walk into a church and we hope that, hey, I brought my black neighbor, so I hope that our two or three black people show up today, you know, because I want it to be an ethnic church. I hope we have Asians, and I hope we have people from Mexico and South I hope we have it, because, hey, this is what heaven looks like. We need to be an ethnic church. Or social status. We need homeless people, right, to be a complete church. We need homeless people and wealthy people and single people and single moms. We need, so, so that, because this is what heaven looks like. And then we get to the spiritual gifts and we're like, no. <laughs> no, I only want a few of them. The ones that make me feel comfortable. The ones I don't have to explain to my parents later on who visited from out of town. Those are the ones I want. The rest of them, the door is over there, right? Friends, that is what heaven looks like. They're pointing to Christ, Look for the gospel in these gifts. If you have a gift of encouragement, it should point to Jesus. 
If you have a gift of healing, it should point to Jesus. Prophecy should point to Jesus. Hospitality, God was hospitable to us. They should point to Christ. Some of you have these gifts to some degree, and you're fearful to step out on them because you're afraid of what people will think of you. You're scared. A little, and I understand it. I, listen, I'd be with you. If I start praying tonight in English and then tongues comes on me, I'm going to be straight up. I'd be a little nervous about that. Some of you might struggle with this. Let me just encourage you. God gave you this gift knowing that you would struggle with it. And God gave you this gift knowing that you would fail at it. But he gave you the gift. And he's a lot wiser than we are. And let me just say that your identity should never be tied to your ability. Your ability to do a gift should never be connected or anchored in who you are. Right? We talk about this ad nauseum. That's what the Corinthians were doing. It was all about what they could do that gives them an image, not what God has done in Jesus that brought them an image. Right? And listen, if you are far from Christ today, if you are far, if you are coming in in Paul's words as an outsider or an unbeliever, let me prophesy over you today, not in a spontaneous message because I don't have that gift, but in the broad understanding of what this is. You wouldn't be here today unless there is some part of your heart that is unsettled with God. You wouldn't be here today. If, if something wasn't off, if even in general you just didn't feel good about the state of being, I don't have to be a prophet to know that. Like Adam, your first father, you were guilty of taking your plan and your will and putting it on top of God's. You're very guilty of that. You're very guilty of not trusting that God's will is good. You're guilty of pursuing your own flesh desires. You're guilty of all of these things. And here's the bad news. That guilt, that, that sentence has already been passed and there's really nothing you can do about it. You can't better yourself, clean yourself, iron your clothes enough, or show up here enough to get that fixed. On your best day, you are far from innocent. The good news is, though, and hear me, there was a second Adam, right, who came to reverse everything the first Adam did. Everything that was sad becomes untrue because of what the second Adam did, who did live a perfect life of pleasing God, following God's will, putting down his own desires in lieu of following God's and not biting the bait on any sin. A perfect second Adam came. And that's good news for you, friend. We're talking about spiritual gifts, and I know you're probably checking out like, oh gosh, what a dumb day to come. It's, it's an odd day, I'll give you that. It's prophecy in tongues. For most of you, this is the first time you've ever heard it taught. But can I just say one last thing? Jesus Christ is the greatest spiritual gift ever given to mankind. And as we talk about spiritual gifts, that's really the only one I want you, as what Paul would call an outsider and unbeliever, to take. Don't worry about prophecy right now. Don't worry about tongues and the different gifts and all the stuff that you feel a little confused about. Find Christ. Find Christ. Find Christ.